Welcome to Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I am Marcos Molitsis, your co-host, along with Carolyn Fiddler, who is sitting today for Carrie Eleveld. Carrie is out sick, unfortunately. So Carolyn is uh, is filling in for us. So we have an absolutely amazing show today. We're going to be talking about two issues that really run to the core of American democracy. One is the Supreme Court and the lower courts and how they've been perverted by conservatives uh, using uh, parliamentary tactics to undermine our ability to have a fair judicial system. We're also going to talk about uh, D.C. statehood. And uh, we know that that the U.S. Senate is grossly uh, skewed towards rural, white, conservative interests. Tiny Wyoming has as many senators as California does. Wyoming actually has a smaller population than Washington, D.C. So we're going to be talking to D.C. We're going to be talking about D.C. statehood. So our guests today are Brian Fallon. He is a former top aide to uh, Chuck Schumer. He's also was Hillary Clinton's national spokesperson during her uh, presidential run. He now runs Demand Progress, uh, Demand Justice, an organization that really is focused on reforming the courts. We're going to be talking to Bo Schuff of DC Vote, an organization that is really focused on DC statehood. So these are incredibly critically important issues facing our country. They can literally reshape American democracy. So I'm excited to be talking about those. And uh, Carolyn, it is actually quite uh, sort of fortuitous that we're going to be talking about these really important democracy reforms on a day that Mitch McConnell literally had a temper tantrum on the Senate floor on you on Democratic efforts to eliminate the filibuster. Yeah, he did. I mean, his uh, his his uh, his under things are starting to show in that regard. He's definitely scared about what seems not inevitable, but seems to be uh, picking up a little bit of steam in the U.S. Senate right now. Yeah, I mean, it seems the catalyst might have been that Dick Durbin, who is the number two uh, Democrat in the Senate, actually came out very forcefully in favor of filibuster reform. And in the last couple of days, maybe I think it was last week, right, that Joe Manchin actually shifted a little bit on filibuster reform. He's been a, a hard no on changing the filibuster rules for forever, right? And then suddenly last week, he saw, sort of did this thing where he's like, well, maybe if it was a talking filibuster, it would be okay. Because right now it's a painless filibuster. All the Republicans right. have to do is say, we're not going to let it through. And boom, it is absolutely dead. If you have a talking filibuster, it means that you actually have to hold the Senate floor with 40 40 people. So basically, you'd have to have a big chunk of the Republican minority in the Senate at any given time. If somebody falters at three o'clock in the morning, boom, you have cloture. You can actually have your votes. You move forward. Right. So Joe Manchin saying, you know what, if you're going to filibuster, at least have it hurt. Like if you really care about blocking something, (laughs) work for it. Right. Right. No, the filibuster as it exists now is is cheap. I mean, if you're going to do it, put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and put your mouth on the floor of the Senate forever. The other thing about the filibuster, I don't think people really realize, is that there's no constitutional basis for it. There's no Senate historical basis for it. It was uh, I'm, I'm not even sure what the original intent of it was anymore, but it was actually perverted into its current shape by unfortunately at the time, Dixiecrats who were trying to block the passage of civil rights legislation, right? So the actual root of the filibuster is quite racist. It has been used to stymie liberal uh, agenda, voting rights agenda. And so you have have Democrats just passed this COVID relief bill, uh, $1.9 trillion. It is one of the most momentum accomplishments legislatively, I think, in generations. It will literally cut poverty perhaps up to in half is absolutely unbelievable and we only pass it because of budget reconciliation and we got one bite at it like you can't use budget reconciliation over and over and over again to pass other pieces of legislation that's a challenge so right now we got 
this may be the only piece of legislation that Democrats pass this entire Senate term if the filibuster remains. I mean, can you think of anything else at all at this point? No. I mean, that that is the hard truth of this. If, if we don't if Democrats don't do something with the filibuster, either get rid of it, hopefully altogether, or at least drastically reform it so that you really, really have to keep talking the whole time to keep it going. Like nothing else gets done um, until until midterms. That's just now, that's just how it is. Carolyn, you're, you're an expert in state legislatures, uh, perhaps the national expert on state legislatures. How many states have something that looks like a filibuster? Uh, um, very, very few. Um, there are certainly quorum requirements and things like that. But in terms of the, the filibuster as it exists in the U.S. Senate, almost non-existent and uh, is not uh, situated in any state in a way that really sort of obviates Democratic intent, small d, in the way that it does in the U.S. Senate. So is there anything that you see in the states where you think that state would be better off if it had a filibuster. Oh, absolutely not. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the thing about states is that legislation moves through so quickly, they are able to get things done. And so many things that happen on the state level become models for good or ill for things that happen on the federal level. But part of that is that these laws have to pass and go into effect and take effect. And people have to see the results of them to see if they want to do something similar on the federal level. But it's kind of moot when nothing's getting done on the federal level anyway. Yeah. And I, w- I mean, just for consistency's sake, we have always been at Daily Coast, we have always been anti-filibuster. And when you're talking about those states, absolutely not. And you laughed at the idea of filibuster would improve things. <laughs> We're talking about states like Idaho and states like, you know, states with Republican legislatures where it would make sense if you're a liberal and you want to be, you know, you make like, let's just find me legislation. Just let's block anything that to, from happening. And you're still saying even in those cases, it's better that there's no filibuster. Uh, correct. And no, no one in any of these states, uh, you might expect when things, when power begins to shift, like you saw in Virginia over the last few years, people might start to bring up like, oh, what if we decided to make this one of the chambers a cooling saucer for, for legislation? No one has brought that up, even as they're, you know, about to face like loss of power. Like it's just not a part of a democratic conversation because it's anti-democratic. And that's, I mean, that's the core. And Mm -hmm. I've I've been anti-filibuster personally, no matter who is in power, no matter who blocks who elections should have consequences. And it's so easy for the party that is not in power to accuse the majority of being, you know, do nothings or they got nothing accomplished when they're the ones that are actually blocking legislation. And Mitch McConnell is sort of a master at this. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he is he's eliminated the filibuster when it suited him, such as Supreme Court nominations. And he kept the filibuster for legislative matters the last couple of years because there was nothing to pass. There was there was no there was no purpose in him eliminating the legislative filibuster because he would have gotten no gains out of it. And so now he's 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 you know, he had heart palpitations today. Right. This would destroy the Senate and what it stands for and and our ability to work together. And, and I literally try to think of something where of substance, not post office namings, something of substance where Democrats and Republicans came together and something good or even something period came of it. I mean, there was some uh, uh, justice reforms in a lame duck session. In uh, mm-hmm. after after you know a couple of years ago, but I mean yeah. it's hard to think of anything that has passed that actually passed with with bipartisan support, right? Right, and and even you know something that might have passed in the in the past. Looking ahead, there's just no reason to think that that would happen again in the current political climate um, in the Senate with people like Hawley and McConnell and Cotton and just people who aren't going to let anything good happen (laughs) because they want to run for president on everything being bad, but that's a whole nother conversation. Right. And and even the idea that if you vote for Democrats with Democrats on anything, it somehow suddenly turns you into a rhino Republican name only. And it gives fuel to, I used to call them tea party uh, challengers. Now they're Q party challengers. Right. (laughs) They were so quaint, the tea party. How quickly things change and get worse. (laughs) All they the time. always find a way. They always, they always find a way to get worth. I mean, I mean, I still, I'll never forgive Donald Trump for making George Bush not look so bad. That's oh my God, offends me more than anything. Uh, yeah, Bush so, still terrible, but. 
So uh, it's one of the critical, you know, critical components then of, of reforming our democracy, I think, is, is this idea of ju- judicial reform. So we're going to bring on our first guest. And oh, my God, today I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little frazzled. So excuse me, I'm a little frazzled. But we're going to bring on our first guest. He is Brian Fallon. He is co-founder and executive director of, of uh, Demand Justice. He used to work in the U.S. Department of Justice during the Obama administration. He was a top aide to Chuck Schumer in 2016. He was a national press secretary for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. What haven't you done, Brian? Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, we haven't fixed the courts yet, so that's the next objective. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Boy, man, it's... it's, Seriously. So, (laughs) 50-50 Senate, right? I mean, we're talking about nothing's going to happen without a filibuster reform, right? So we, we, let's just assume that somehow we get Kirsten Cinema and we get John Tester and especially Joe Manchin to agree to what probably at best would be a talking filibuster, but something that can be overcome. So, but things are on a razor's edge. We have to deal with Joe Manchin every step of the way. What could be accomplished in the next two years on issues of the judicial, of the judiciary? Well, uh, I'll be honest with you and with your audience. I think that um, we have some work to do to get elected Democrats in the House and the Senate to view the need for judicial reform on the same plane as they are now viewing, say, H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. You know, the House just passed H.R. 1. It's coming over to the Senate. Uh, I think Chuck Schumer will bring that bill up. It'll probably be filibustered probably multiple times. Uh at the end of that, the House will pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That will come over to the Senate. That will probably be filibustered, too. And I think all those things will serve to bring these issues of democracy reform and all these proposals being filibustered on the Senate floor to a head, cause them to get rid of the filibuster. But then when it, the time comes to decide what proposals are we going to move under the new rules of you know 51 vote basis, we can't forget about adding seats to the Supreme Court and adding seats at the lower court level because... Quite simply, it's the right thing to do for a variety of reasons, but it will utterly negate the point of passing all these other bills. If we go to the trouble of getting rid of the filibuster to pass H.R. 1 and all the meaningful expansions of early voting and absentee balloting, universal voter registration that that proposal will bring, and we go to the trouble of passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, but then we forget to do anything about the structural problem of the judiciary that's been utterly Trumpified over these last four years, then these Trump judges will just overturn all these proposals and gut the new Voting Rights Act the same way they've gutted the the original Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County decision. There's a case just this term that they heard two weeks ago where they're likely to gut you know one of the few remaining sections of the 1965 voting rights act all during the run-up to 2020 we saw common sense you know um, measures taken by states to try to make voting easier during the pandemic and you saw the court conservatives consistently strike down those proposals um, so on voting and democracy issues on election issues the the, the roberts court is 100 percent consistently coming down on the side of republican party politics and that's propping up this counter-majoritarian system that we have that is, you know, obviously personified in the Senate and its structure, malapportionment, like you were just talking about. Um, the filibuster itself is a, is a, a counter-majoritarian tool. Um, the Electoral College is a counter-majoritarian tool. And the, the court itself has now become a roadblock to having common sense measures that the public overwhelmingly supports carry the day. We've got to do something about the courts, too. I think it's quite doable. In the coming weeks, I'm expecting some some really strong lawmakers in the Senate and the House to introduce a proposal to add seats to the court. You'll remember there was an outburst of support for that after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last fall. The issue was sort of retreated to the back burner during the election for obvious reasons. But I think it's going to resume uh, focus because of a bill introduction that I think is going to add seats to the court in the House and the Senate. And then our task will be, as a progressive movement, to put pressure on Democratic lawmakers in the House and the Senate to rally behind that proposal and get them to treat it as urgent as H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I have a question about sort of, I guess, tactics in a sense. I, I, this, the conversation after RBG died was expanding the Supreme Court. But um, I think the many viewers of this show and listeners probably know that, you know, expanding other courts is just as important. 
strategically, do you see these proposals as like packaged together? Are you thinking of moving one and then another? Or like, okay, we're going to try for the Supreme Court, but maybe let's expand lower courts first. What are your thoughts in terms of strategy here? Um, Great questions. Our organization supports a raft of proposals, uh, adding four seats at the Supreme Court level, imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices to limit them to 18 year terms, which would have the um, side benefit of ensuring that at any four year given presidential term, there's two seats that would come up every four years. And that's constitutionally that's constitutionally permitted. Yeah, so um, the uh, Constitution says that uh, judges get to serve for uh, good as long as they're as long as they uh, carry out good behavior, uh, which is um, basically life tenure. And so the the leading proposal on term limits would say, okay, the Constitution guarantees that a federal judge has been confirmed by the Senate gets to serve for life. Doesn't guarantee that they get to serve for life on any given court. So we could limit a, a Supreme Court justice to say 18 years on the Supreme Court and then have them sort of roll back and become a circuit court judge after and basically take a version of senior status, if you will, after 18 years. And there's a lot of constitutional scholars that think that that would pass constitutional muster and thus you could do term limits by a simple act of legislation, same way you would add seats to the court. And then the third proposal, which gets to your point, is adding seats at the lower courts. So, you know, the vast majority of the judges that were confirmed under Trump's uh, four-year reign, 200-plus judges, uh, had a historic pace thanks to Mitch McConnell having nothing else to pass policy-wise for four years in the Senate. Um, you know, they were all at the district court level and the appellate court level, which has, you know, the Supreme Court only hears about 80 cases a year. So the last word on most of these hugely important matters is rendered by lower courts, the district and appeals courts. And I'll give you an example of, you know, the significance that they have. A lot of the executive orders that Joe Biden has already signed and will continue to sign are being challenged by right wing foundations and nonprofit litigation factories that just make it their business to try to stop progress by suing in the courts. And they go and they cherry pick the venue where they file these lawsuits. And so the eviction moratorium during COVID that the Biden administration sought to extend right-wing organization went to court, found a Trump judge, and got a hold put on that eviction moratorium. And we're going to see that on issue after issue on every policy that matters to progressives where Biden's good intentions are going to directly run into conflict with Trump judges that are view their job as to sort of, you know, prolong Trump's uh, agenda well into the Biden administration. So, we haven't had an update to the size of the lower courts, a meaningful one, since Bush 41 in 1990. So we're overdue for that. It used to be normal every 20 to 30 years to update the size of the court. John Roberts himself has been asking Congress for several years now to give him at least 70 lower court judges because of the workload that the existing judges ha- are facing. Our points to Jerry Nadler, who's the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, to Dick Durbin, who's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Let's move a bill. Let's give John Roberts what he's asking for. Let's give him new. Let's give Joe Biden new judgeships to fill at the lower court level. But no, let's not limit ourselves to just the seventy that John Roberts is asking for. We should go higher than that, and uh, and that would go a long way towards solving the problem that we face in the judiciary, even if moving the Supreme Court expansion bill is slower. Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi are all on board with at least adding seats at the appellate and district court level. So that's something I think that can move this year um, and be an urgent priority that could actually get done pretty quickly if they do get rid of the filibuster while we build support for, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court expansion bill. Yeah, I think it's very critical to remind people that these judges can and likely will undermine anything that Democrats pass. So we may sit there and celebrate legislation that's passed, but none of it really matters if it just gets struck down by these courts, uh, not just because they want to prolong the, you know, the Trump agenda, but they also want to undermine Democratic governance so that it makes it easier for the next you know, round of Republicans to win elections in the next you know, coming cycles ahead. So that is that is absolutely critical. Where do you see the fault lines? Uh, where do you see the, uh, not the fault lines, the, the roadblocks to enacting this, assuming again that we have an actual 50-50 Senate and we can pass it with 51 votes with uh, the vice president. Is it the usual? Is it Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and maybe maybe some of the traditionalists like Carper from Delaware and uh, Lee from Vermont. Is, is that the usual? Is I mean, is there anything? Have you heard anything from those individuals that gives you confidence 
or have you heard something from some of the people you may not be thinking about that makes you go, uh oh? No. So I, where I, what I would liken it to is like where filibuster was, say, two years ago. So <clears throat> you have a lot of reform-minded people, newer members of the chamber that are on board with it. Alex Padilla, who was named to uh, Kamala Harris's seat from California, um, even before he was sworn in, was asked in an interview and said he supports adding seats to the Supreme Court. Um, Markey, who's very in touch with the grassroots movement based on the race that he just had in Massachusetts, um, uh, he was the first one to endorse it in the Senate and in October after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And so yeah, the constituency that we're going to need to win over is not just the cinemas in the mansions. It is the institutionalists in the Senate that only recently converted on the matter of the filibuster. So it's 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 the Diane Feinsteins, of course. It's the Chris Coonses of Delaware. Yeah. It's the Amy Klobuchar's who just converted and is is all in now on getting rid of the filibuster. But these are people for whom they worry about the idea that, like, aren't, aren't we just going to be as bad as the Republicans if we go down this road and we seek to add seats? Like, won't we just create a tit for tat where even Cory Booker, who's a progressive on a lot of issues, has made that argument. And then you have a good tranche of people in the Senate that haven't come out for it yet, but that I know wanted to or were on the verge of doing so in October and were just asked to bite their tongue because leadership didn't want the issue injected in the final weeks of the Senate campaigns, which I understood. But now the campaign is over. And now I think with this bill introduction that's going to be coming in the next couple of weeks, I think we'll bring the issue to a head. Plus, don't forget, Joe Biden in the heat of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg confirmation fight was very open-minded to the idea of various structural reform proposals on the court and ultimately agreed to appoint a commission. Commissions are usually where, you know, ideas go to die in Washington, but it was a blue ribbon. To- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The bluer the ribbon, the deader the proposal usually is. <laughs> But it will at least serve to keep the issue discussed in D.C. for the next six months when he names the commission. And from what I hear about some of the people that he's putting on it, there are some actual proponents of adding seats to the court that are going to be on the commission. So the combination of the bill introduction and the commission being formed, I think, will serve to keep the issue on the front burner. And then, unfortunately, you know, bad decisions that are going to come from the from the Supreme Court, perhaps on the Voting Rights Act, perhaps on some other cases that are brewing this term will also serve to light a match that I think will cause a new wave of um, support to be expressed from rank and file Democrats that we don't yet have. Um, and then for our part at Demand Justice, we're making a huge investment. You know, we've existed for only three years now. And in 2021, we're making a huge investment in distributed organizing a seven-figure commitment to hire organizers in order to try to galvanize some of that support that organically came during the RBG fight, but then sort of dissipated after you know the election and the disputing, uh, the the contesting of the election took center stage. We realize we need to build a long-term movement around this issue. We're going to make that investment this year. So I encourage people that are watching or listening uh, that are interested in this issue, that are committed to you know, trying to expand the Supreme Court, please sign up on our website at demandjustice.org because next week, at this time next week, we will have more information about how people can get involved around the upcoming bill introduction. Yeah, I think no, you please. a really great point about uh, people needing to feel more pain before they realize how crucial this issue is, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I think this is of that soon in, in terms of coming decisions. Yeah, so in yeah. The, or in, in, uh, organizers often talk about uh, trigger events that sort of create like a wave of support and attention for your issue. And we definitely have one with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. I think we're probably one more away from the mm-hmm. dam breaking of expressions of support from establishment minded lawmakers. Now, there is that argument that you brought up the now won't Republicans just do the same thing and add seats when it's when they have power. How, how would you respond to that argument? What's the counter to that? Well, I'd say that like the worst case scenario is already here. Like we have, even if Republican, even if we were to summon the will to get rid of the filibuster, add seats to the Supreme Court and say, hold a seven, six advantage on the court. And um, in the next election cycle, the Republicans won back a trifecta and they decided to add two seats to give themselves an eight, seven. We'd be no worse than the status quo right now. So if we do nothing to me, there's nothing to lose from that. On the other hand, if we do nothing and we continue to let a six, three court you know, remain legitimate and remain in place undisturbed to issue whatever rulings it wants, uh, all of the priorities we care about are going to be at risk. In the last, the last term last year, there were a bunch of cases 
that a lot of progressives were worried about. You had cases on uh, the Louisiana abortion law, for instance. Um, you had cases about discrimination against LGBT workers in the workplace, whether they could be fired for being gay. And uh, we dodged a few bullets on those cases because John Roberts sort of worries about the court becoming too much of a lightning rod and sometimes strategically sided, has sided with the liberals in the Yeah, I think past. it's the fear of the court uh, expansion that... I agree. Kept I, them in line. I, I but the problem now is with Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it doesn't matter if John Roberts has this institutionalist streak that occasionally wants him to side with the leads him to want to side with the liberals. They have five solid votes now on all of their white whale issues, like you know expanding the Heller decision to make it uh, to make uh, any regulations on gun safety impossible. To, to completely overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, they've got five solid votes on that conservative agenda. So I don't think we can trust and hope and pray that John Roberts will continue to be the saving grace anymore. So there is one question from, from a, a reader um, right now. And the reader asks, how about ethic rules, ethics rules for the Supreme Court? <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure if there's one that could help, but I mean, have you, is that something you guys have considered? Well, there, how about any ethics rules for the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court is the only court, this is true, the Supreme Court is the only court in the United States that has no ethics regime governing its activities. No so kidding. To, there, uh, to give you an example of what that means in practice, at the time when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, you know, he was elevated from the D.C. Circuit Court, the sec- what's considered the second highest court based in Washington, D.C. And at the time that he was con- confirmed, he had 82 pending ethics complaints filed against him that normally would have triggered at least some kind of preliminary review. A lot of and, and then the moment he got confirmed um, with Susan Collins standing in the well of the Senate and deciding to, to, to vote for him. John Roberts had to dismiss all 82 of those ethics complaints with no further inquiry launched because he was immune as soon as he became a Supreme Court justice. There is no rules governing disclosure requirements. They can go on junkets. You know, this was before Antonin Scalia died. You know, he was well known to go on these hunting excursions to Texas and who paid for his lodging and who paid for those weekend jaunts, you know, didn't need to be disclosed at all. So this also sort of comes up every time, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, uh, pops back into the news because she's on the payroll of a lot of far right organizations that have business before the Supreme Court. And so there's all kinds of conflicts, none of which are governed by any of the disclosure requirements that exist in the Senate or for the executive branch. And so it's sort of it's um, it's sort of a sin that this sort of exists. There's um, in the House, they're aware of it. They're passing a, me- a, stand- a measure that is included in H.R. 1 that would bring some requirements, impose some requirements on the Supreme Court. That's another proposal. If we do move an expansion bill or even a lower court expansion bill, I think they should tuck a Supreme Court code of ethics into that bill because right now they have nothing. God, wow. That was a much better question than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> So I, we have time for one more question, uh, Brian, and uh, we all learn very painfully what happens when a Supreme Court justice uh, stays on the court too long. Um, is there any any of our existing justices that are in that similar situation right now? Are you worried about about uh, another Ruth Bader Ginsburg happening? So I, it's getting to the point now with Stephen Breyer, who's 82 years old and is the um, senior Democratic appointed justice now. Um, it's getting to the point now where when Joe Biden was elected, a lot of people came out right in 24 hours and said, all right, uh, Stephen Breyer, you should retire. Then when we won the Georgia runoffs and it was clear we had the Senate, then people were like, all right, you really need to retire now because this is a narrow window where we could guarantee confirm a successor. And and some people pushed back. I was among the people that said it right after Georgia. And I got a lot of private uh, nudges from people saying, hey, give him his space. He used to work on the Hill. He understands the politics of the Senate. Like, he doesn't need to be publicly chastened. But, you know, we're, it's March now, you know, you know, uh, <laughs> also big so we're, getting, we're getting we're getting. Yeah. The idea that Supreme Court justices should be treated with kid gloves. Yeah, it's like they're public space. figures. They ought to be accountable. <laughs> but the but the but the um, but in January saying back off, give him. OK, but we're getting to the point now, you know, in Barack Obama's first year. Um, David Souter retired. I think that came in April. So like we're getting to a point where if we don't see sort of some step 
voluntarily taken by Stephen Breyer, I think everybody needs to turn it up to 11 just to make sure that the message is being received. Because this two win, we can't assume that the window that we have is going to be a two year window. Like we have a lot of octogenarian senators, any one of which, you know, that has a Republican governor um, that could switch control of the Senate. So we can't assume that we have even two years of this opportunity to confirm our agenda or confirm a Supreme Court justice. So I think it's fine if he wants to stay till the end of the term, but he, he ought to announce it ASAP that he's going to be leaving. So at the end of the term, so that Schumer and the White House can get their ducks in a row. And uh, and we don't have to live live on, on on the brink here, worrying that we're going to have another RBG situation. In fact, I think you can make the case that RBG's decision to stay on in 2013, which was criticized at the time, her being there and her being a little bit older than Breyer and her having had a couple of bouts of, with cancer at that point, sort of obscured the fact that Breyer equally ought to probably have resigned back in 2013. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of he's sort of like RBG took all the heat. And so to the people that are saying, you know, give him his space, I would argue that based <laughs> on the fact that he didn't get out in 2013, just like RBG didn't, he probably needs a little bit more pushing. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's way too much. Uh, there's definitely way too much at stake. And, and I, um, yeah, no, you're right. The, the notion that a Supreme Court justice needs to be treated with kid gloves and all oh, he needs his space to make up his mind. He knows what's at stake. He knows what the politics are. And we know that Mitch McConnell will hold that seat open for two years if he has to. He has no compulsion. Absolutely. And this idea that he'll <laughs> he'll give a hearing to anybody. I mean, how long was it with uh, with um, Obama and um, Merrick? Uh, Merrick Garland? It was almost a yeah, year, right? That's, I mean, you know, over a year. And yeah. People forget, but I remember because I worked on the Clinton campaign in the fall, in October of 2016, senators like Ted Cruz and others were going around saying, if Hillary wins, you know, that's when everybody in the world thought Hillary's going to win. If Hillary wins, we're going to keep the Supreme Court at eight. We're not going to let her confirm anybody to that Scalia that's seat. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ted and Cruz so, said that, I remember and, very clearly. Yeah. Yes. And, and so now some of those same Republicans are out there like clutching their pearls over the idea that Democrats might add seats to the court. They've been happy to manipulate the size of the court when it suited them. At the state level, they've added seats the last few years in Georgia and Arizona, those state Supreme Courts. So this uh, yeah, is North a thing where, yeah, they, yeah. Have a, they have an approach of might makes right if they, when they're in power, and then they sort of get out their fainting couches if Democrats think about wielding power smartly on our side. So we just need to not fall for that. So Brian, people can join Demand Justice at demandjustice.org. Is that the That's plan? right. Um, yeah, you can sign up right on the homepage. And uh, if you do sign up, um, you'll get the alert next week about uh, the action plan to support legislation to add four seats to the court. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Such a pleasure to have you. And we'll definitely want to check in in a couple of months and see how things are going once this legislation is, is released and making its way through that legislative process. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. I'll be happy to be back then. Thank you. Carolyn, um, <laughs> the ethics stuff really actually kind of shocked me and you would think right? that would be low-hanging fruit that even that might garner actual some of that some of that elusive bipartisan type of support that uh that yeah. we don't see happening because i don't know why anybody would be okay with um with un you know unquestioned supreme court justices who can do anything they want given how powerful and important they are i don't uh, know republicans backing up kavanaugh they're gonna they're not gonna be a big fan of ethics <laughs> no you're right you're right you're right I mean, right now like, every once in a while i have a I, you know i have a streak of uh of optimism that humanity oh. isn't as bad as it might be but then yeah you're right republicans actually it's not all of us have it <laughs> So, let, so we're gonna we're gonna move quickly to our next guest. He is Bo Shuff. He's the executive director of DC Vote, who an organization focused on getting DC statehood representation. I guess right. So, Bo, yes, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. So, um, you helped you and your organization and your allies helped shepherd a DC bill through a chamber of Congress for the first time last term. Is that correct? Or was it this term the first time? No, last term, uh, right? It was, it was last term. We're starting it over. So it feels like it's this term, but it was last term. It was uh, June 26th of 2020. Uh, it was DC vote and a huge coalition of organizations, uh, both at the local and national level that, that helped get that done. Of course, uh, under the leadership of Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton, if I if I leave her out, I'll be in big, big trouble because she doesn't <laughs> yeoman's work. 
Yeah, don't leave her out. Yeah, no. <laughs> so congratulations on that accomplishment. And but we knew at the time that it was it was very much a symbolic vote given that the Senate was in Mitch McConnell's hands. Now we are in a whole new world. We have the majority, but it's a, it's a 50-50 uh razor edge majority with a Joe Manchin and a Kirsten Cinema as part of that majority almost want to use square coats when I use the word majority but there's a real good chance I think that we may be able to get rid of that filibuster we may have a talking filibuster I mean Joe Manchin has opened a door to just making it yeah, more painful to maintain one which actually gives us a whole new opening towards passing legislation that otherwise might might be dead on arrival which is almost all of it right uh, so we were talking to to um Brian Fallon earlier, uh, he's demand justice about courts and court expansion, Supreme Court expansion. And this sort of in that same boat, right? This is a critical component of American democracy. We have a Senate that is so unrepresentative and we have an entire population of people, predominantly black, that are that are completely uh, cut out from from, you know, have proper representation. Right. And so this is obviously the, the, the right solution. But again, we're running into the politics of it all, the, of the Senate. Could D.C. statehood pass in a 50-50 Senate as it currently exists? Well, i just go right to the question. Huh? <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, I, let me go back just a little bit, because what you, what, the second half of what you said is really the gist and, and the crux of this, arg- of this argument and this issue. Statehood's been called a power grab. It's been called a partisan play in order to maintain a permanent Senate for the Democrats. But that's just not correct, and it's not fair to the people who live in the district. It is a power play. I will 100% agree with, with, the, with everyone on that, but it's a power grab for the people of D.C. It is 712,000 people who have never had represent uh, that's not true we had representation for a year and a half before they took it away from us uh, 200 and some odd years ago so everybody forgets but that's why but it is a power grab for people and, and that's what matters is that the 712,000 people who live here are fully and equally represented in the congress um senator uh, schumer has said it's a priority it was in the Democratic Party platform. It was, has been supported repeatedly by President Biden, including from the podium in the briefing room on day two from uh, from Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Um, so all indications are that we're in the strongest moment for statehood that we've seen in decades. There's still a fair bit of work to do. It is a 50-50 Democratic majority, but we do not have positions from a couple that you mentioned, Manchin and, and Cinema, but and also uh, Senator King uh, from Maine. So it's this is not a done deal. There's a ton of work to do uh, and a ton of education that still needs to go on because the vast uh, majority of the population doesn't really know a lot about what it's like. They may have what it's like to not have senators, not have a voting representative, and not be treated equally in your own country. Um, so there's a ton of work still to do, but we're we're optimistic. We're going to have a hearing next Tuesday in the House to start the whole process over again. Uh, or I'm sorry, next Monday. I'm losing my own mind. Uh, next Monday at 11 a.m. in the Oversight Committee, um, and we're on our way to doing everything that we did last year and then the next step as well. I was uh, shocked to learn recently that uh, Republicans in state legislatures of all places have decided to weigh in on this issue. Uh, There was the gentleman in uh, Arizona who said that people who live in D.C. should just move if they want representation. What do you think the fact that this conversation has gotten down to that that level of, of government means for the debate at large? I, I will balance that out a little bit. We've also introduced resolutions in favor of statehood, and I think we're at six legislatures at this point. Uh, there's a great group called Students for D.C. Statehood that is actually heading that effort up, and they're doing amazing work. Um, so we're seeing it at the state legislative level, but it, to get to your point, why is it at the state legislative level? There's two reasons. One, there's a fair number of people that think it takes a constitutional amendment in order to grant D.C. statehood. That's not actually accurate, but it's why states would come into effect. And so some state legislatures are saying, wait, 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 don't take our power to make this decision away, even though it's not. Uh, the other reason is that... Um, it helps us build awareness. It helps us build understanding and it helps teach, like I was just talking about, people not knowing about the issue. That includes state legislators a lot of times, that they don't know what it means. And and one thing is that we can make a really great uh, conversation with state legislators because the Congress takes away the right of D.C.'s state legislative equivalent, our district council, to pass our own laws unfettered. Uh, every time the law, a law is passed by the district council, it goes up to congressional uh, to, to Capitol Hill for review for 30 days 
or sometimes they come back to it three, four years later in the form of a, a budget writer to try and overturn it. Um, so that's a real peer-to-peer conversation that can happen between the district council members and the state legislators. Because, like, can you imagine what the Idaho state legislature would do if uh, Congress suddenly overturned one of their laws? Like, it would be uh, it'd be insane, right? Like, that would never, never stand. But they do it to D.C. on a yearly basis. Yeah, but they're white people. Yeah, there's a lot of it to that. You can't. Um, I, one of the places where this this disparity really came through was during the uh, congressional um, insurgency back in January yes. 6th, right, where you could not call up the D.C. Uh, National Guard, which was right there right. because mm-hmm. it had to run through federal authorities. And of course, um, uh, Donald Trump's crew was trying to block that. Right. For all the obvious That's reasons. Right. So. Um, it, it really sort of brought home just how, I mean, you had to have Pelosi calling Virginia in Maryland, begging their governors to send troops, right? Yeah, they weren't prepared for it. They weren't ready for it. So it, it is absolutely absurd, the idea that you have an entire class of people that can't actually self-govern, particularly blocked by Republicans who claim to be Republican, right? They claim right. to be federalists. Right. Now, there is a speaking of Republicans, a Republican congressman today released a quote compromise, right? Compromise and definitely using square quotes there where he said, well, the solution is we'll just we'll just put D.C. population into Maryland. And that solves all the problems. Now they have representation. How do you respond to that? Um, That's it's a challenging argument. We've we've never asked people to, like, give up their identity in order to gain equality. That's just not how we do things in this country. We have constantly expanded the definition of equality to include more and more people, whether that's, you know, we started with the right to vote solely for land-owning white men. And over the course of 200 and some odd years, we have added identities to that, whether that's African-Americans, women, people who don't own land, uh, getting rid of poll taxes, immigrants, etc. We have always grown the pot without asking anybody to give up who they are. And that's not true in this case. And of course, of course, it is the idea that we're going to take a majority African-American, I'm sorry, a plurality African-American district, a majority person of color district, and tell them that in order to get equality, in order to get representation, you get to stick yourself, attach it to somebody else. We're not going to let you stand on your own or on our own. But in order to get what you're rightfully entitled to, which is full representation in the Congress, you have to give up who you are as Washingtonians and become somebody else uh, that you've never actually been a part of. And the entire argument is based on this idea that Maryland gave us land. That's like wanting to go back to the house you sold and sit on the porch because you like their lemonade. Right? <laughs> it's just not how we do things. Maryland gave up the land. It is now Washington's and it is ours to do with as we choose because self-determination and self-representation is a thing. And no one's saying that we should consolidate the Dakotas. Well, there are, but I don't agree with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Republicans aren't saying, all right, Republicans aren't saying we should consolidate the Dakotas. How about that? Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Is there a Republican, a, a good faith Republican argument against D.C. statehood that doesn't really just devolve into, we don't want to give Democrats two more seats in the Senate? I don't think there are, honestly, I don't think there are any good faith arguments against statehood from either party, from anyone. Um, They come up, you know, in the hearing last year on statehood, we heard arguments about parking lots, Mm -hmm. um, uh, literally about where, like, this was my favorite thing, because there was a congressman who was super concerned about where his congressional staff was going to park, because the lot was going to end up in the district and not in what's called the federal enclave. People need to know that the capital of the country will still exist. There will still be some place for all of us to go. And all of us to air our grievances and protest and rally and you know celebrate the fourth. It's the residential and commercial areas around that that will become the new state. So this congressperson was super concerned about it until a member from uh, Virginia pointed out that there were congressional staff that parked in Virginia and took Metro all the time. Uh, so, you know, we've already got, but that was one of the big arguments. That and you know a specific building that hosts a specific hotel owned by a guy, you know. <laughs> Crump, um, whether that was going to end up in the enclave or in the or in the state, these were the things that they were concerned about. So there's there are no good feasible arguments opposing DC statehood at all. There's never a good reason, uh, as we settled two hundred and some odd years ago, to live under taxation without representation. We fought a war about it and we won last time I checked, um, <laughs> and so that should apply to everybody. I'm thinking like, all right. You know, we're political and steeped in this. And, you know, I live uh, I live in Arlington. I've lived within a few hours of D.C. for most of my life. But there yep. was a point in time when I lived 
in Arkansas. And I'm trying to think like, like what is your sort of strategy um, and your and your talking points that you see as most effective to you know convince people who just it's not that they don't well they don't care and they're just really out of touch with what it means to yeah live here. I don't th- and I don't even think it's out of touch, right? I think it's just people live their lives and it doesn't impact them on a daily basis, so they haven't thought about it. And once they start to think about it, it's a very straightforward conversation, right? It is taxation without representation. It is the idea, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative or a liberal, that one person has one vote and that that one vote counts for something. Um, And and I think that we have seen, especially since November of 2016, a a conversation in this country at levels we've never seen before about how do you fix our democracy? How do you you repair all all of the things? And one of those things is structural imbalance and structural racism and structural inequity. And DC statehood is an is an issue of that. And so when you get into voting rights, you know, I, we refer to DC statehood as the original gerrymander. They literally drew a line around us and told us we don't get representation. We know that it is a form of voter suppression because it is 43% African American and we have no voice in the Senate. We would probably be, uh, we would probably elect two African American senators to, to, and that would double the number, or at least, you know, increase it by significant numbers in the United States Senate. Uh, we know that we have an urban rural divide and an urban-rural imbalance, and this would be two senators that represent an urban population. So there are a number of reasons why this is part of the structural reform and the democracy reform uh, package, but it really gets into yet another example of structural racism. Uh, and and, and I, last time I did an interview, I said it's a living, walking, breathing example of white supremacy. A majority Jurisdiction of color is ultimately governed by a majority white body in which we have no say. Uh, it is like you cannot find it in a textbook any clearer what white supremacy looks like. And so those pieces have to come down. And when we have those conversations with people all over the country, they get it. They understand it. It's just like I used to work on the marriage issue. Um, and, I, and I would ask straight people, I'm like, are you gay? Or are you interested in getting a gay marriage? No, but you care still, right? Like we can be beneficial for other people, even if it doesn't impact us directly. And I think those conversations we have across the country absolutely move our direction and people support the concept. So one, I was actually very encouraged last, I think it was last year, late last year, when Joe Manchin was not against D.C. statehood. He wasn't for it, right? But he... Right. He, he wants to hear both I, sides. Yeah, he was sort of like, I'd like to hear more on the information, right? And he's, yeah. he's very happy to like shut stuff down if he doesn't like it. He's not a shy uh, legislator. Do you have any particular insight into where he actually stands on this? Um, or is it just, it's a big question mark like everybody else has? That's absolutely the same information. We have we have three that we don't have a set uh, statement out of, and that's King Mansion and Cinema. Uh, and you have, we have everybody else. Yes, uh, they've at least campaigned on it. Like they're not necessarily co-sponsors of the bill yet. We're at forty-one on the on the Senate bill. We're at two hundred and fourteen in the House, but of the remaining Democratic senators. Um, several of them campaigned on it, including Ossoff, Warnock, and Hickenlooper. Tester in Montana, Shaheen in New Hampshire were, were both on the bill last year and are just not back on it yet. So we have like, so everybody else is on record one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, those three are the only three that we do not have an opinion on. Are um, there any Republicans that might be gettable? There are three Republicans that have made interesting statements about representation. They haven't gone so far as statehood yet. And that would be uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who indicated that she remembers when uh, they weren't a state and what it was like to go through that process. And that if it were, her exact quote was, if it was resident driven, she would pay attention. Uh, And then we've had uh, Senator Romney from Utah and Senator Collins from Maine indicate support for the conference. concept you were floating before of retrocession of sticking us back to Maryland. Um, But, and again, coming out of the marriage movement, to me, that's the civil unions of the statehood of the statehood fight, right? (laughs) It's a made up, it's a made up concept that nobody actually wants, but it sounds good to moderates. And and so I think we're going to be able to have conversations with them and hopefully move them in support of statehood. Once there's sort of greater understanding of that Maryland doesn't want DC as part of it and DC doesn't want to be part of Maryland. So that's a solution that like, it's again, it's a wedding that nobody actually wants kind of like a civilian. Yeah. I would never, I would never count on Collins on anything, but if, if, yeah. if so you're doing God's work, if you're talking to her, <laughs> I mean, I talk to everybody all the time, you know, I'm, but I was- I'm, Aimed in South Carolina, the couple as well. So, So I was actually specifically going to ask about Murkowski specifically for that reason, because of Alaska's relatively recent history on the on the issue. And, and, you know, she is actually shaping up to be a legitimate swing vote in, in the Senate. 
yeah, that would be amazing. If, if yep. you balance out a, a mansion, then we're there. So we're actually pretty, pretty close assuming we get rid of the filibuster. So it kind of gets back to the original premise of we started talking about Bo in the beginning at the top of the show, talking about how Mitch McConnell today was absolutely flipping out on the floor of the Senate about the idea of eliminating the filibuster and how that would destroy the chamber. And it's, I think, because there was actual real momentum heading in that direction, including Manchin sort of softening yeah. on uh, on the filibuster. Because uh, obviously, if we, if we have the filibuster, none of this happens. So, Bo, what can people do to help move D.C. statehood? Uh, that's a great question, and I appreciate it. Um, number one, like I said, the hearing is coming up Monday morning at 11 a.m. Uh, if you go up to show, go to showup4dc.com, which is the number four, so it's showup4dc.com. That's our action page where you can do all kinds of stuff, including find out about our, our watch event for the hearing, um, which is actually way more exciting and fun than it sounds, I promise. Uh, if you're in D.C., there's actually... Well, they're going to be talking about parking lots. I mean, That's right. <laughs> can't miss that. Uh, Parking lots and hotels, you got to come. Like, uh, not the things you would expect for democracy reform. Uh, if you're a DC resident, we have events going on that morning in all eight wards. All of that info is there. To stay up to date and in tune with DC Vote, it's dcvote.org. Um, and actually, we just launched our revamped website. So it's uh, check that out as well uh, and sign up for alerts and, and identify and, and um, actions. But if you live outside of DC, we need your help the most. We need you to contact your elected officials on our behalf because ours don't get to vote. Um, and that kind of is an important piece of this whole thing. So uh, that's the number one thing. That's show up the number four DC show for DC.com. Yep. That's right. And then dcvote.org is our main website. And if you live in Alaska, or you uh, live in Utah? If you live in Alaska, check out uh, Stand Up for, I'm sorry, Stand Up Sup Alaska, it's Stand Up Alaska, or Alaskans Take a Stand. Uh, they're a great partner organization with us who is in favor of statehood and have been doing some advocacy. Uh, they did a fantastic town hall a few weeks back, um, and they actually just did a drop-up of letters to Senator Murkowski in support of statehood. So there's two great organizations up there as well. So but we have time for one more question. And, and you are a veteran. I mean, you, you, you've referenced it a couple of times. So I'm going to assume you're a veteran of the marriage equality um, fight. A bit, yeah. How do you see what parallels and do you see between the two fights and, and uh, oh, wow. what lessons are you taking forward as you fight for statehood for D.C.? One of the biggest lessons that we took, it was, a, it was a few years back now, but it really sort of framed how we go about this issue, and it, especially DC Vote as an organization. Um, and it comes directly out of my work in marriage. For a long time in the LGBT community, we were talking about what I call the pieces and parts of marriage, which was the ability to not testify against your partner or domestic partner benefits or health insurance, right? All of the things that come with a marriage certificate, but don't actually talk about love. And which is the key concept of marriage. And it's also the part that everybody relates to, because everybody, even if you're not married, you know somebody who is probably Odd, safe bet. Um, and the concept is love. And so once we started talking about love and once we started talking about marriage as a concept, everyone understood that love is love. Right. You've you've heard that. Yes. Um, Statehood is the same thing. We were talking about the pieces and parts of statehood, whether that's legislative autonomy or budget autonomy, which fits really well on a bumper sticker, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> we, were, we were talking about all the little bits and pieces, and nobody understood what we meant, like the ability to pass our own laws. What do you mean you can't pass? So then you get into like a 10-minute conversation. When I talk about statehood, everybody has either been to one or lived in one, one of the two. And so you may not know exactly what state laws give you or don't give you or protect you from, but you may not have all of that memorized. But we all have really strong state identifications. I'm a right, I'm an Iowan, I University of Ohio, whatever it is, the sorry, Ohio State University, my bad. Um, <laughs> We all identify with states, and once we adopted a concept of talking about statehood as a whole sum of the parts, uh, it was easier to resonate and much easier to make that conversation happen because people saw themselves in our fight. It goes back to the earlier question about why somebody in Arkansas should care, um, because they start to see that themselves in the same fight, even though they don't live here. They can see that we have pride in our, in our location. We're Washingtonians. We're not Marylanders. Um, and, and so, therefore, that... that that resonates with people. Um, and it's absolutely one of the things that has made us uh, made the messaging successful and made people think about the issue in a new way. 
Thanks. Yeah, I'm very impressed with the number of Democratic co-sponsors you already have, given how many are in not traditionally liberal outposts. So congratulations on all your work. Congratulations on all the effort that you and your um, your you organization, much. your partners, uh, the electeds that are doing this battle, because this is this is a critical battle in the in the fight for our democracy in the in the immediate future and in, in, in the years ahead. So, well, it's such a pleasure to have joined us. Uh, we Thank may be calling much. you in a couple of months and, you know, if this thing gets any traction, we may want to check in again on you. So uh, right. thanks so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks again. Thanks. So Carolyn, somebody in the comments um, at Daily Coast asked, how about statehood for Puerto Rico? And and I, I want to quickly address that because it, it's, it's sort of the obvious next right. state uh, after D.C. Uh, yeah. That's that's the question, and so the question with with, with Puerto Rico is is it's it's a self determination question for a territory that was sort of conquered. It's a territorial you know territory of the United States. There are colonial uh, issues to unravel, and the people of Puerto Rico have never really been asked in a binding referendum what they want in their future there's been a bunch of referenda referenda right. is that the, is that the plural to referendum <laughs> referendums <laughs> referenda there's there there's been a bunch of them but they're always boycotted by one side or the other because right. they don't really mean anything so they become yeah. sort of these sort of you know political spectacles with no stakes so everybody gets to gets to uh victory or they don't whatever. have to make, make a real decision yeah. And so if you were to go on Twitter and see people respond to, these, to Puerto Rico statehood, you're going to see a lot of, you're going to see the statehood. Now you're going to see the independence crowd really come in and talk about colonialism and, and decolonization and things like that. And, and um, I, I don't think they have a majority. They're very loud and very organized, mm -hmm. but um, there's also a contingent that's like happy with the status quo, right? People are okay with the Commonwealth. And then there's people that actually realize that, the, uh, Puerto Rico is always going to be second tier unless it's a state. Sure. And that debate has to be had by the people of Puerto Rico. Exactly. And to complicate matters, it also, you have to decide whether Puerto Ricans living in the United States get a say in that question and which ones get a say, right. first generation, second generation. This is a very complicated issue. DC is clear cut as, as can be. Right. I've never met a Washingtonian who doesn't want statehood. I'm not saying I'm, I'm sure those folks exist. I have yet I, to meet them in my 13 years in this area. Well, there's like 10% of DC that's Republican, right? So they don't. <laughs> so maybe that's, that's where they're at. <laughs> but in Puerto Rico, so the, when, when people ask about Puerto Rico, the answer is um, let Puerto Ricans decide. Yeah, I would love Puerto Rico to be a state. And cool. I will tell you right now that it is not a guarantee that it would be two Democratic senators and nope. six Democratic representatives. It's not a guarantee. Not so it is not as clear a partisan play as some people may think. I mean, Democrats well, would have the advantage. Really a partisan play at all. It happens to be that voters in the in the district of columbia tend to be over are overwhelm are overwhelmingly democratic but that shouldn't matter i mean if if puerto rico were definitely going to give us two republican senators and they wanted to become a state that shouldn't matter they should become a state that's just how it works it should work yeah people who don't don't who don't have power absolutely um and again this is this is a consistent consistency i mean puerto rico if if suddenly it turns out that it's a lot more republican than we think and they decide they want statehood i'll be for statehood yeah, absolutely. That will be for statehood. So that's why that's why DC for a while people were saying you know statehood for Puerto Rico and DC and you got to disentangle the two. It's there are two different issues. DC is clear cut. It's easy. Right. There's just no good faith argument against it. There mm -hmm. might there is actually a good faith argument against Puerto Rican statehood, and that that is that we really don't know what the people of Puerto Rico right. um, want, and we don't even know who gets to make that decision. Mm. You know, if during the economic crisis, Puerto Ricans who move to Orlando, do they suddenly lose the ability to have a say in what their island? Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, the status of their island. I, you know, and it's not for me to decide. I'm not Puerto Rican. To me, it's let the Puerto Rican community decide how to answer that question. And then they can decide for themselves. And if they decide, yes. Now, I would like to see a bill or a law pass that says if D.C. votes, I mean, if Puerto Rico votes for statehood, then we shall grant it. 
because then that gives you the ability to have an actual referendi referendum with that teeth yeah. that matters which yeah. we haven't had before so carolyn that's all the time we have today that was actually some pretty weight matters man DC oh yeah statehood and uh, supreme yeah. court and lower court reform carolyn thank you so much for joining us in very last minute since uh <laughs> carrie was out sick so i really appreciate that you thank know. you to Walter for uh, our producer, as always, for helping put the show together. Thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts or if you're watching it on YouTube or Facebook. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week. Thanks so much. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.